Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and each week we bring you visits and conversations with people doing healing work for this world, hearing what they're doing and what inspires them and supports them in doing it. Welcome to Spirit in Action. Andrew Boyd decided to take the climate crisis by the horns of despair and ride it through to the bitter conclusion. And the result is his latest book, I Want a Better Catastrophe, Navigating the Climate Crisis with Grief, Hope, and Gallows Humor. Though Andrew quotes the wide range of experts who say we've already passed the tipping point and that horrible consequences are certain, Andrew is not out to prove the science but to face unflinchingly the human possibilities of the situation. Along the way, he interviews a number of the leading thinkers and actors in dealing with the crisis, folks like Guy McPherson, Tim DeChristopher, Joanna Macy, and Robin Wall Kimmerer. He's a humorist, an activist, the author of several other books, including Beautiful Trouble and Daily Afflictions, and he's also the chief existential officer of The Climate Clock. This is an immense topic, so look for some bonus excerpts and the uncut version of the interview on northernspiritradio.org. Thanks to Andrew Jansen for production assistance on today's show. Andrew Boyd joins us via Zoom from New York City. It's great to have you here, Andrew, for Spirit in Action. Mark, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Better catastrophe. What an uplifting idea. (laughs) (laughs) The fundamental thing that people need to start with, and you give elements of it throughout the book, Andrew, but I don't think most people think there's a catastrophe coming yet. People are much more positive. Paint the dark picture. Yeah. So what you're referring to, better catastrophe, is the core concept of the book titled, I Want a Better Catastrophe. And so I've been a lifelong activist, you know, very positive, very hopeful, can do eyes on the prize. As Nelson Mandela says, you know, it always feels impossible till it's done. And, you know, I've been operated by that dogged commitment. And so, you know, win everything, whether it's, uh, you know, trying to build more affordable housing in some of the neighborhoods I've lived in, trying to eradicate sweatshops, trying to calm nuclear arms race back in the day that sort of went out of control, fight for marriage equality, elect a black president, you know, try to get closer to universal health care in this country. I've, I've worked on all those causes. And sometimes you win or sometimes you half win, but it's often hope that's powering things. And uh, then I've worked on as the climate crisis became worse and it appeared to me as a existential threat to humanity. I worked on, I've worked on that. Uh, it's been my main focus for the last 10 years. And I have grown increasingly profoundly concerned uh, about the trajectory we are on. I think a lot of people have that sense of dread, uh, maybe not uh, you know, trying to, as one of the people I interviewed for the book saying, we're only barely squinting at the apocalypse. You know, we're not ready to open our hearts to how threatened our future is. But yeah, if you read the science or, you know, even really just pay attention to, you know, news article after news article, or depending on where you live, just look around at forest fires, the global weirding, the kind of chaotic uh, weather systems, the destabilization of, of what we taken for sort of granted of the regular rhythm of the seasons, and the tornadoes are 400 times more frequent. The forest fires uh, in you know in the West that uh, your listenership maybe is is more familiar with are raging. Out of the fire season is longer and longer. The Arctic ice is receding uh, at an accelerated rate. Uh, it was 70 degrees Fahrenheit uh, in the Arctic last year. There's just records uh, being broken uh, all over. 
and things are just getting worse. And if you look at the curves, this is all powered by our carbon emissions over the last 200 and, you know, particularly over the last 30 years. And we are, we are about to blow past key red lines that the scientists have told us not to cross. Most notable of them is a 1.5 degrees centigrade warming. This is what uh, the Paris Climate Accords uh, committed every country signed to do their damnedest to stay under that critical ecological threshold that we don't want to cross or else all of the things I was describing uh, will get worse. You know, the last, uh, I think nine of the last 10 years have been the hottest on record. These kind of things are continuing and getting worse. So I hit a point where it was like, oh, we're not going to be able to fix this in the way uh, we're not going to be able to sort of quote unquote win here in the way uh, that we may have won on more doable causes. This is not a problem to fix. This is a predicament uh, that's we're going to have to learn to survive and live with and navigate and remedy. But we are going to be permanently damaging the planet that we depend on for our lives and livelihood. And so that was like a, a key spiritual moment in the book, if you will, right? That we're not in a, pr- a linear problem. We're in a predicament. We're in a ongoing uh, existential challenge. Uh, and this requires almost a religious level of attention and inner resources that we need to bring to bear on it in a way that's just different than normal politics. So hopefully that captures a little bit of the trouble that we're in and the kinds of human response that it demands. It does capture a lot of the overview. There's a few details of it I want you to amplify on, Andrew. One is, what is the catastrophe? It could be a lot of different things. One of the catastrophes, you know, when we talked about nuclear war, right, you fought against the arms race and all of that. The nuclear winter was one of the catastrophes as possible or largely, you know, irradiating the entire surface of the earth and wiping out most of the population. The catastrophe could be human extinction. It could be extinction of other species, which is already happening very rapidly. Which are the catastrophes that you're looking at that are particularly motivating or influential to you? I mean, our entire ecosystem is approaching many different crisis points because of the unsustainable nature of our economy. You know, all the plastic pollution clogging the oceans, the carbon that's being absorbed by the ocean, increasing acidity of the ocean, which is threatening and bleaching a coral reef, which are, you know, critical marine ecosystems, the crisis of biodiversity, uh, the background extinction rate is, we're losing species at 100 times faster than our background extinction rate, the sea level rise, and these are all caused by rising global temperatures. So sea level rise is increasing, you know, Miami is uh, not likely to survive the century, and many other cities, you know, most humans live within uh, sort of 50 miles of the coastline. I think 50% of Americans live within 50 miles of the coastline. So forced migration due to, you know, climate refugees, the UN predicts, you know, possibly 100 million climate refugees by the middle of the century. The consequences are vast and they're all caused by global warming, which is a human caused phenomenon. It's because of the carbon dioxide and and other carbon based uh, methane and other carbon based gases, greenhouse gases, they call them, that our fossil fuel powered economy has been putting into the atmosphere for the last 200 years. And it acceleratedly in the last 50, 30. So what we need to do is transition rapidly. We're starting to do it, but we're not doing it at speed or scale that we need to transition rapidly off of fossil fuels to a renewable solar power, uh, wind, tidal, geothermal, et cetera. 
and that transition is underway. You know, probably many people listening have a hybrid or an EV vehicle. Maybe some have solar on the roofs, but we need to do it system-wide across our economy and society. And because we've waited so late to do so, we really needed to be cranking on that 30, 40 years ago. The fossil fuel companies cast shade on the scientific consensus, blocked paths, spent $100 million on lobbying to prevent us coming together as a society the way we did in World War II and taking on this existential challenge in the way we needed to. We're now past certain you know, critical red lines. We're now needing to do that at an accelerated, that make that transition at an accelerated pace. And we're in for some of these impacts have become unavoidable. Thus, the title of the book, I Want a Better Catastrophe. We're in for some kind of catastrophe amongst all those impacts that I mentioned. But how can we rally? How can we change course? How can we take this problem at the level of seriousness and mobilization that it deserves and get the best catastrophe that is still available to us. Thus, the the paradoxical conundrum of strategizing and uh, rallying for a better catastrophe. I just want to toss out a few levels of catastrophe that we could be facing. And by the way, I do think that we're too near the edge of the cliff. We haven't put on the brakes. We're going at such a speed. Even if we've got the brakes jammed on, we're still going over the cliff. So my question really is, which cliff? If it's a five-foot fall, it's different than if it's a a 100-meter drop. You know, there's questions like that. So one of the catastrophes that is possible, I suppose, is the eradication of life on Earth. I think of Mars. Maybe there was life there once, but climate and situations changed. Maybe all life ended. I don't think that's what we're really headed toward, but that's a possibility. Could be another mass extinction event. We're in the sixth one, we believe, right now. So that's one catastrophe. Lesser catastrophes include eradication of the human species. And for the world, that might look like actually a pretty good outcome because we're pretty damaging to so many other species. But a lesser catastrophe than that might be just the the loss of our industrial so-called civilization. And that's a catastrophe. But there could even be a lesser one. Maybe it's that the population of the Earth only goes down to 1 billion people instead of 8 billion people. And that would be a catastrophe. But what kind of better catastrophes are you looking at? Do you have a hierarchy of uh, good disasters? (laughs) A hierarchy of good disasters, yeah. Who knew that uh, you live a life um, of hope and activism and then you end up on a radio show where someone says, do you have a hierarchy of good disasters? Who knew that uh, things would go that direction? So the book tries to bring, you know, in my whole career of activism, I have tried to bring humor to the issues I've been working on, both because it's just how I roll, it's who I am. I need to laugh to stay sane. I need to laugh to keep my spirits up to stay in the game. It brings people together. People feel like they're treated, not preached at when you're making things funny. You know, people feel invited in to the situation. It's a way to make the difficult things more bearable. So the book is laced with humor and your hierarchy of good disasters, whether intentional or not, is sort of uh, fits the tenor of the book. There's a dark humor there. There's a gallows kind of humor there. So just to address the, the, the cliff notion that you brought, you know, many of the people I interviewed for the book and I went out and spoke with people of all walks of life, including some of our, you know, leading climate thinkers, Adrian Marie Brown, Robin Wall Kimmerer, Tim DeChristopher, famous climate activist, Joanna Macy, uh, eco philosopher, 
some psychologists, scientists, etc. And one of the things I learned, like Tim DeChristopher said, the thing that blocks people is they think we're going off a cliff. So it's like, we're just barreling along and then it's all over where it's, we're already falling off the cliff. So there's nothing to be done. And he really challenged that metaphor. He challenged that storyline. And uh, he said, because people can't think beyond the cliff. And so uh, what I realized in reading a lot of literature and understanding things, we're not, it's not a cliff. It's not like a sudden, we're just going along and then it's a sudden vertical drop. It's more like, and, and this is one of the chapter titles. And again, where the humor tries to come in, it's just like, don't worry, we're not heading off a cliff, just down a sharp, slippery slope. Woo, I'm relieved. Wow. Yeah, woo. So it's like, what is the shape of how this will work? Our economy will force us up against ecological uh, limits. This will cause economic impacts. Food prices will go up when certain bread baskets of the world or, you know, food producing regions are either in drought or are flooded uh, in a continuous way. So we'll hit these moments where the ecology and the economy uh, intersect to create a crisis and a, what one of the people I interviewed, you know, calls a, a shock or a slide, you know, more either a, a partial kind of climb down to a, a slightly lower level or a gradual sort of slide down. So it's a rough, rugged slope that we will be, as the earth can no longer sustain the, the ravenous appetite of our industrial economy, we'll hit these limits and we'll kind of in this staged breakdown where we will stabilize uh, at certain moments along the way. And then there might be another, another shock or slide. So that's the kind of geometry, if you will, of, of what to expect. The point is at each of those moments, is a chance for us to have a better or worse outcome, right? And the metaphor, the story, rather than going off a cliff that was shared with me by some of the people I interviewed was rather we're in a canoe. The canoe of our civilization is navigating the rapids as the, you know, our unsustainable economy struggles to, you know, goes through sort of these little, you know, these little rapids and then uh, these eddies where it's a little more stable and then another rapid. And we have agency in this being pulled along, along these, these treacherous currents kind of thing that we're in for in our future, the next n- number of generations. But we, there are places we can get a paddle in to steer course, to avoid the worst outcomes, find calmer water, prepare ourselves for the next crunch. So I think that's just, it is inaccurate and unhelpful to think about utter destruction of everything in this black wall kind of a way. Rather, that there's a challenge before us. Uh, it's a difficult one, but we're in this canoe together to some degree, and there are things we can do to steer our course and find a better, calmer water that we can. The story that we tell ourselves is absolutely critical to how we handle the coming challenge. So that's why I'm focusing on that. That compelling voice that you're hearing, folks, for Spirit in Action is Andrew Boyd. His recent book is I Want a Better Catastrophe, Navigating the Climate Crisis with Grief, Hope, and Gallows Humor. And we're going to try and get into some more humor as we go along. I'm not sure you've been rolling it on the floor listening to this so far, but maybe we'll get there. So we talked about the first person you interviewed already, Andrew, and that was Guy McPherson. Again, scientist. And let's be the best of our species, right? There are eight people you interview in the course of this book. What I would say is this book is not a scientific investigation of the specific environmental outcomes that are coming our way. It's not that. This book is, in my opinion, a philosophy treatise into the human condition as we're facing 
not a problem, but as you say, a predicament. And just to be clear, folks, problems have solutions. Predicaments end up having consequences depending which path you follow. I think that's there's something going to happen. There's, you're stuck between two problems, if you will, two or more. Again, I made the point, you like humor. I like humor. I mean, humor is, I think, one of the things that one of my favorite books actually is Stranger in a Strange Land, Robert Heinlein. And Michael Valentine Smith, the man from Mars, raised by Martians, comes here, doesn't understand humor. And finally, he gets it. He he can chuckle, he can smile, but he doesn't know how to have that deep laugh. And he finally comes to it when he sees they're at a zoo and he sees he's watching some monkeys and one monkey you know gets a banana is about to eat it along comes a larger monkey beats him up takes the banana and then that monkey's about to eat the banana and a bigger monkey a gorilla or whatever comes along beats him up takes the banana and that sends him into gales of laughter and he's rolling on the floor for 10 minutes that's humor and he tries to explain it. He says, finally, I understand humor. And I think that the idea of dealing with catastrophe fits exactly with that view that Robert Heinlein conveyed through his character in that book. What about humor for you is particularly helpful, useful, important to us? Yeah, I read that book. I must have missed that moment in the book. Interesting. I just memorized the book, just like I've memorized every line from your book. So just I have, I'll let you know. I, <laughs> I have amazing receptivity of certain points. I'm going to think about that scene from the book and why that is funny. I have my my thoughts on that. But yeah, humor is oh, one of my touchstones is uh, something Oscar Wilde, the the wit, the famous uh, British wit from uh, you know more than a century ago, you know, said, um, if you're going to tell people the truth, you'd better make them laugh or they'll want to kill you. Uh, you know, very sharp, <laughs> very sharp framing of it. The consequences of climate change and the hole that we've dug ourselves in and how that's going to play out in the next, you know, across this century is one of the more difficult truths to reckon with and to bear and to share. And so I think it's almost a, a spiritual responsibility to bring as much, you know, what, what one of my interviewees said after being in prison for two years, actually in federal penitentiary for blocking an auction of oil and gas leases in the beautiful Red Rock country of Utah. He was thrown into prison for two years. His name is Tim DeChristopher. And then he said, look, if I'm going to tell people the truth about our climate predicament, I'm going to want to do that with care. In fact, with a pastoral level of care. So he went, got a scholarship to the uh, Harvard Divinity School and studied with that intention. And then has you know, continued that in his various work as a farmer, as, a, as an activist, uh, et cetera, as a founder of the Climate Disobedience Center. Anyway, and humor, I think, is one of the ways you can take care of people in this moment in, in helping people hold this bad news. As Oscar Wilde says, it's a way to make it, it makes things. There's something in laughing. When we laugh, we take stock of it. When we laugh, we bring a whole different kind of full bodied resource into the picture. It's a cathartic thing that opens our heart and our heads to things we may not be willing to see. It, it's a moment of revelation. It kind of warms the cosmic, you know, what do they call the cockles, the cosmic cockles of our hearts, you know? Yeah, it allows us both to see something, like you're saying with the example from Robert Heinlein's Stranger in a Strange Land. Suddenly there's a sort of understanding of, of reality of how the universe works, of human nature, and it allows us to hold it. Yeah, so I bring humor into all, all sorts of places. So for one, for example, is the notion, 
there's this whole culture war around is climate change for real? Is it a hoax? Uh, in some ways, besides the point, because there's many things we can agree on, even if we don't agree on that, that are good for the world, right? Like there's a story I came across when I was, I've uh, been on book tour all across this country from the East to the Midwest to the West, where I am now. And in Maine, in the state of Maine, uh, outside of Portland, I heard a story as I was snowshoeing with a friend who was hosting me for the book reading I was doing in the backwoods of Maine during a big snowfall, which I hadn't seen in New York for years, which is one of the effects of climate change. You don't, with New York, we don't have much snow anymore for years and years and years now. So there it was, this beautiful thing called snow that I was very familiar with, but hadn't seen in a long time. And I was tromping around snowshoeing in the woods there outside of Portland, Maine. And I heard a story about... um that small town outside of Portland that, you know, there were red people who were Trump voters and people who were blue voters and, you know, didn't necessarily agree on the science behind climate change. But someone who believed very strongly in climate change went to the city supervisors to propose turning a brownfield, a contaminated brownfield, uh, remediating it and putting a huge solar field in there that could power much of the energy needed for the whole town. And he sold it to the city supervisors without mentioning climate change once, right? So he just said, look, it'll make our community cleaner. We'll be able to get our energy cheaper and we'll be able to have like energy sovereignty. We'll be able to control the source of our own energy. And like whether you're right or left and blue or red, that was a winning argument regardless of whether, you know, so it comes back to that, you know, very famous takeaway, that humorous sort of take on a way, takeaway, which is like somebody sitting in the back of a lecture hall where somebody is, uh, you know, outlining climate change. And if we tackle it properly, here's all the, you know, we can get safer communities, clean air, etc. And he's listing all these benefits. And there's this guy grumpily uh, uh, in the back of the lecture hall going, what if it's all a hoax and we create a better world for nothing? Oh my God. No, not that. <laughs> There's a way in which, you know, humor in that case is like just revealing the ridiculousness of the ginned up culture war. And, you know, like all the resistance to doing things is just uh, a bit, uh, you know, just sort of as a moment of revelation. Humor can do that. Humor can have that crystalline moment of right. <laughs> yeah. Look at how absurd we are proceeding here. There is an obvious common sense other way to go. And humor can grease those wheels. And some of that grease is coming to us from Andrew Boyd, who is author of I Want a Better Catastrophe, Navigating the Climate Crisis with Grief, Hope, and Gallows Humor. You are listening to Spirit in Action. Our website is Northern Spirit Radio. That's three words, northernspiritradio.org. On the site, you'll find links to all of our guests of the past 18 years. And to get a hold of Andrew Boyd's newest book, and he's got a few others that you might want to look up as well, his current website is bettercatastrophe.com. And if you're spelling challenged like I am, you might not know how to spell catastrophe because it's got a noisy E instead of a silent E at the end, all that kind of thing. Northern Spirit Radio, you can spell correctly. So come by our site and you'll find the connection to Andrew and all of our other guests. And while you're there, make sure you post a comment. Give us some feedback. Give us direction where we should be going. Say what speaks to your condition, what doesn't. And you can also donate. That's how this full-time work is supported. It's by your donations. It's not coming from either corporations or government. And that's really important to me because I want to respond to your needs. I want to have autonomy. And so much of our world is driven by the industrial system. 
the uh, capitalist system, and I think that gets addressed a, a whole lot in the book as well. Capitalism as a driving force for making our decisions is a big deal. There's no simple solution to it because we all need to figure these things out, and Andrew Boyd helps us do that because this book, as much as it includes a lot of science, is also philosophically important. Where do our values come from? What governs our decisions? What should govern our decisions? In the book, by the way, Andrew, you interview a total of eight different people specifically about for the book, and we've already mentioned Guy McPherson and Tim DeChristopher. The next one that you run into in the book is Meg Wheatley, and you go to a training that she does, and this is coming out of Buddhism. I love these little statements you have for each person. The one for her is, give in without giving up. You have more problems with her than with others, it seems to me. There's a number of other people that you interviewed where you're not exactly on the same wavelength with them, but hers just doesn't seem as uh, energizing as what I think you like to be energized. You want people to be energized, and that's the best way we can get the best catastrophe we can have. If we just give in without giving up, that doesn't, from your point of view, I think, reach to the better catastrophe that you're stretching toward. It's tricky. You know, she was doing a workshop with 100 people in Boulder, Colorado, and it was framed as beyond hope and fear. You know, and it was a very Buddhist approach, you know, not being attached to outcomes and not being attached to feelings. She took on a very difficult, I don't envy her. She was delivering very difficult news to hear, and she was counseling a very radical response to it. You know, in her, you know, she's a longtime community facilitator and organizational systems consultant and Buddhist a convener, you know, so she has this a long history of bringing people together uh, and going through, bringing people through processes. So, you know, she has some skills in that, in that realm, but a very, 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 very difficult task. So, but yes, it wasn't just I, it was as she basically was counseling in the course of trying to counsel people to let go of both their, you know, she, she says there's, we have fear because we have hope, right? That was part of the, her Buddhist understanding that these are twinned, you know, and that there's a huge attachment to hope and a huge attachment to progress and future outcomes and sort of forcing our will upon the world and being attached to the results. And in her Buddhist, you know, she was just encouraging us to not be attached. So, so there was resistance from many people present, including myself, at the giving up of hope part. You know, we have children. What are we supposed to tell them? That we're just going to let it all kind of fall apart and not do everything we can to try to secure a livable world for our children? You know, it was a pretty reasonable thing to protest. So it was, a, it was an interesting, complicated, fraught moment captured, you know, that me, you know, sort of just trying to witness her trying to bring this this wisdom teaching forward and people's reaction to it and you know captured some of the complexity of our moment that you know everybody is going through what is the right spiritual psychological ethical response to our predicament but yeah i'm more of a there's a lot you know yes you know not disagreeing with a lot of her litany of some of the rough rough patches that we're in for that we talked about at the beginning of this interview but a fighting response you know i felt is is absolutely necessary in the ways that i've already described that hope has a role not a pretending things are better than they are not a fragile optimism results dependent kind of a hope that gets immediately discouraged or falls into fear when you know when the latest bad news kind of hits the newsstands 
But the whole enterprise of writing this book was a quest and recounted in the book. There's, it's a sort of a narrative of going in search of a hope that is robust enough, that is fit for purpose for the 21st century, you know, and for a predicament that we're not going to be able to solve, that we're going to have to be able to walk through and survive and remedy as opposed to fix, right? So what kind of hope is fit for purpose there? So many people shared things with me. And I would say what I walked away from the interview with the workshop with Meg Wheatley was, yeah, there's a way we have to not be attached to outcomes. That doesn't mean we do nothing. That's not necessarily counseling passivity. It's how do we bring our best self to bear? How do we bring our fighting spirit? How do we focus on the solutions that are still available to us? And there are many, and I can go through them, but without expecting it all to work out. And so without constantly getting crushed, without constantly going through this despair and hyper-enthusiasm and despair and hyper-enthusiasm cycle, but rather get us on more steady footing for the marathon that we need to do. Uh, both as a civilization and as individuals and communities, you know, how do we stay sustainable for the long haul here? So there was a invitation to not be attached to outcomes that I think was a very positive takeaway from the encounter with her and just recognizing how difficult a job it is that she has, you know, to bring this difficult news. And yeah. I think the fourth person that you interview, really, I found intriguing. I'd not heard of Gopal before. And I found of the people, he seemed to be, the most, I don't know what, lucid, comprehensive. I was quite amazed at them. Tell, tell the folks who are listening to Spirit in Action a little bit about Gopal Dianani. And did I pronounce that correctly? I don't even know. Yes, you did. Yes, you did, uh, Dianani. You're not the only person flagging this interview. It's the most remarked upon interview. It's in, in many, just the most standout interview. In spite of big names, you know, bestseller people who are, you know, household names with people who care about this kind of thing, you know, who have multiple bestselling books, Adrian Marie Brown, Robin Wall Kimmer, uh, Joanna Macy, etc. This is the interview that's most remarked upon. And he's, uh, he's someone I've known on and off, you know, in our various and uh, our lives as activists, been to conferences that he's organized, you know, heard him speak in various places and been on actions with him. He's based in Oakland. As you can tell from his name, there's a South Asian origin. He's described himself as the, the first Indian, South Asian Indian, to have ever been born in Norway. <laughs> you know, uh, so he has a very interesting you know, backstory and a very committed activist and radical. He's a professor. His name is not well known because he operates very collectively. He likes to work with others and believes that we don't, he doesn't believe in the great individual version of history. The most important things in history have been done through collective effort, and he embeds himself in groups and collectives and, you know, believes in collective ownership and authorship. So you, many people haven't heard of him. And when he said, said to me the very first thing at the interview, was like, you're writing a book? I would never write a book. Like, that just seemed like just so insane to him. And he said, I could be a chapter in somebody else's book. And I was like, well, it's your lucky day, because that's exactly what you get to be. <laughs> Bingo. And so the interview was extraordinary. I met him in Oakland at a commune where he lives with a handful of adults and a handful of kids and a, and a handful of chickens. They're even growing corn in the yard, in their yard in the middle of urban Oakland. Uh, it's a very beautiful place, multiple buildings, uh, garden. They did a lot of the work building this out themselves and learned as they went. And he's part of a, an organization called Movement Generation that has developed a very grassroots, justice-centered orientation to how to navigate the unraveling of things that we expect industrial civilization to run up against limits and, and unravel to some degree. And he, as you say, he speaks extraordinarily lucidly and concretely about 
strategies where at each moment where we're hitting a crisis point, that that becomes a moment where different solutions are possible. And there will be a contest over which solutions society you know, agrees to or ends up using to navigate through the next difficult patch. But like I said, which he refers to as in, there's different kinds of them. There's shocks that are more sudden and slides, which are more gradual. And they, he and his colleagues have navigated a lot of this st- stuff out and have frameworks by which communities, organized communities, workers, citizens, people who are have been historically oppressed can have a stronger voice, be more organized and uh, assert their rights, whether that's the rights to water, whether that's the rights to breathe fresh air, whether that's the right to have democratic decision making over their communities and over what the energy grid, the local energy grid kind of thing, where these become contests. And he's very aware that these aren't things where we all kind of talk about it and come to the best decision and that there's often contests of power that concentrated wealth and capital will want one type of solution and the best interests of the wider community will be served by a very different kind of solution. And which one we get depends on a political contest. And he's very committed to nonviolence, but that will often be a contest that's worked out in the streets or through sit-ins or occupations or blockades or you know, very smart organizing where you build large coalitions and uh, engage in very visionary work of imagining alternate futures and insisting on them through a fight for one's rights and also the rights of mother nature. So it's a very, yeah, it was just fascinating to talk to him. And the interview is one of the more fascinating. It's also because he's less well-known. And so people are like, wow, it's, it's fresh and new material. So where the better catastrophe shows up for him, he definitely acknowledges that we're in for some kind of catastrophe. That's sort of the premise of the book. How do we get the best one? And for him, he says, we are going to suffer. We've messed things up. We're already suffering. But as things break down a bit, we are going to suffer. So how do we distribute that suffering most equitably? So for him, a better catastrophe lies in centering justice and in centering the concerns and needs of those who are most vulnerable and those who have been historically most oppressed and those who are at the impacted receiving you know, business end of extractive capitalism and the the inequities and violence uh, of the current unsustainable hyper-consumerist you know, capitalist system that we are living in. So that's where we will get a better catastrophe if we can take care of and empower and center the needs and voices of those communities in our crafting of solutions. So yeah, so that's Gopal and it's incredible. And I would just mention that as well thought out. I mean, he had an answer for every question you asked him that was deep and really insightful. So I was completely impressed by the interview with him. And I'm still left with this nagging doubt because my belief is there are way too many people on this planet that we can't help but wreak damage to the ecosystems because of our numbers. We've overpopulated it. It's like the uh, the ants who produce mile-long piles of ants and they denude the entire territory. That's what we're doing. So I believe that a large percentage of the human race, the numbers have to decrease very significantly. I don't think this can all be done equitably to everyone. And I maybe I think the poorest people are the people who have to survive, not the richest people. But uh, there's all kinds of questions like that. But I would say that the idea that we deal with equality or equity probably 
doesn't make sense if what you're doing is you're traveling in a boat that's going down, you have a few lifeboats, you can save a few people. I would like to wisely choose who survives in that case. Let me toss in one more thing to make it more complicated. We will all die. So the the idea of a catastrophe is whether I die sooner or later. That's that all of us are going to die. All the 8 billion plus people on this planet are going to die. And so usually it's not just splitting hairs. You mean perhaps. in the normal, in the, in the natural in, course of things? In the na- normal course of things, we will all die. It's just a question of whether we die sooner or later, may, whether there are generations that go on from there. That's the imp- more important aspect of the catastrophe from my point of view. The other species on the planet, those are very important to me as well. So to be fixated on, well, you know, we've got enough food to feed 30 people, but we've got 300 people here, we should split it up equally. That doesn't make sense to me, that you try and make your best decision for the well-being of the the future, I guess you'd say. And that point of view, I, I'm more with Robin Wall Kimmerer's outlook on view than the this focusing on simple equity. Now, again, it's not simple, and I think that Gopal would have a, a perfectly good response to what I just said, but I'm not sure if you can match him, Andrew. Can you do it? Here you go. I can take a stab at it. Absolutely not at the level of Gopal. But no, I just want to point out that it's not just like there's a tendency for us to focus on a pure population. And while it is true that, you know, we're currently at 8 billion and we thought we were heading to 10, but it looks like the numbers are more like tapering off more quickly. You know, birth rates are dropping in East Asia and, and Europe, you know, considerably. So that curve is bending. So we probably won't hit 10. We'll likely hit nine and it'll start dropping off. But What's missed often in this, and the natural carrying capacity of the planet is estimated at about 2 billion people, you know, that that would be a sustainable amount. But the critical thing here is not just the number of people. It is the level of impact that those people are having, and it's extremely different depending on what society or, or where you're living. So the average American has 150 times the ecological footprint, the negative impact on our ecosystems than a, somebody from Ethiopia, just to take one extreme example, right? Yeah, that's why I said, by the way, it's probably better if the poor people survive and the rich people go. <laughs> that's because I thought that the Ethiopians would do less damage to the ecostructure. Right. So it's, but it's, it's, it's what it's a question of is responsibility here. So I think there's a, there's this notion that like, oh, there's so many people in the third world, right? There's so many people in the global South and that's what's taxing this planet. And no, what's wrecking the planet is the impacts of the rich economies and particularly the history of the rich economies building themselves up with dirty coal and oil for 200 years to get to the place uh, where they are and then continuing to, to spend and, you know, people just flying all across the country, all across the world, you know, at the drop of a hat to take a weekend vacation, you know, wherever they want, you know, this kind of thing, owning many cars, blah, 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 et cetera, you know, building McMansions, you know, all the kind of stuff, eating, what is it, but I think cows and other livestock are 90% of the biomass of the entire planet. Humans and cows together are 90% of like, you know, the biomass, just this extraordinary uh, extractive, in, negatively impactful meat-based livestock system, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it's very important to note that the people who have done the least to cause this crisis are the ones suffering the most right now. Most of the climate impacts are being felt more severely in the global South. You hear about all these refugees coming across the, the Mediterranean. That's a lot of it is because of failed harvests due to droughts, due to climate. Rising waters will make this far worse. So that's very important. So it's just absolutely critical to understand the 
injustice of the current arrangement, that those of us who have built up our economies are most responsible to do all that we can to remedy this asymmetry of impacts that's across from the global north and the global south, but also within our own communities. What happened in, in, with Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans? You know, was it the rich or the poor that were most impacted there? When the decisions were made, when the levees were under pressure, uh, did they flood the rich areas or the poor areas? You know, like, so it's, it's, there's a justice component uh, throughout this in terms of how the impacts land and also in terms of how the solutions are crafted. Uh, and the decisions made in these moments of extremis. So that's just critical thing to bear there. And so I'm not sure if I'm answering your question properly here. I think it is. And I think Gopal would be proud of you for that response as well. I know that some of that was included in the book as well. You know, Andrew, we're getting near the time where I'm going to have to <laughs> get off of Zoom. But there's several points I want to include in, uh, make sure we address before we go out. And so I'm going to try and do it as efficiently as I can from my side. One of them of the people uh, we haven't talked about that you interviewed, we've got some really wonderful big names and really wonderful influential people. And maybe people have already learned a fair amount about Joanna Macy. She certainly is worth learning about and learning from, learning with. She's an amazing person. And I encourage people when they're reading, I want a better catastrophe to focus on that part and some of the pearls of wisdom that she continues to pass on. Jamie Hecht is one of the other peoples. Adrienne Marie Brown, I already referred to Stranger in a Strange Land, which I thought was a very important learning tool for me. And Adrienne Marie, she uses fiction to write and give insights and helps us. You talk there about all kinds of alternatives, fiction, science fiction, that we can learn from or learn with. We can visualize, make possible futures. And so I want folks to definitely focus on that portion of the book. And then you come to Robin Wall Kimmerer. I read Breeding a Sweetgrass. My wife read it before me. She bought copies of it right when it first came out, distributed them to everyone. She spoke at a national Quaker gathering I was at, so I spoke to her a little bit there. She's an incredible person in her insights combining both science and traditional ways of placing value are just so wonderful. So all of that's in the book, folks. And we could talk about it here, but I wanted to touch on a few different things that we haven't touched on. One is, this book was it came to us through the New Society Publishers. I got connected with Andrew Boyd through Peter Bermudis of the Gail Leander Public Relations. I'm going to mention those because the media that we get delivered to us is so important. And New Society Publishers is an incredible source of good information, of valuable world healing information. And Peter, in his work with GLPR, is one of those people who helps us get that good stuff. So I want to tell you, those are important sources. Did you have to look around to a lot of places? I'm wondering if a lot of other publishers turned you down. New Society said, no, this is what we need to get out there. That's a great question. There's famous stories of famous authors and beloved books that got turned down by tens, hundreds of publishers until they found somebody who's willing to take a risk on them and then went on to win the Pulitzer Prize or whatever. Uh, so it does happen. Yes, I was turned down by two publishers till I found New Society Press. You know, the book is unusual. And so it, it makes sense that it took a little while. But the uh, acquiring editor uh, wrote back to me. The first thing he wrote after reading the manuscript, he, he wrote me a an email that was like, okay, this guy really gets the book and this is fantastic. And he wrote me an email that began, you, sir, 
have written the Marmite of climate. <laughs> I was like, wait, where's this going? You know, where's this going? And, and it was like, you know, Marmite is famous. It's this, you know, strange yeasty spread that they is big in the Australia and the British Isles, but unfamiliar often in the US. It's famous for you either love it or you hate it. You know, so he's basically saying, this is a provocative and unusual book. You know, it's bringing humor to something that, you know, you're, it's a bit taboo to bring humor to because of its, because it's such a sort of consequential and such a bed of suffering and, and disaster talk. Uh, how can we joke about it? Brings humor to it. There's a lot of personal moments in it. It's quirky. It's unusually structured. It, it's, you know, experimenting with some things. It's very provocative in places, whatever. It's like people are either going to hate it or love it. You have written the Marmite of climate books. So that was the, the response and they really have embraced it. You know, they're a great press for books about the environment, both self-help books of gardening and permaculture and what have you, and also big idea books like this one, worth checking out their whole list. So, you know, new society publishers, check them out on the web. They've been a great partner. They recognize that I've put in a lot of sweat into uh, the promotion of the book. You know, you have to do that. You just want to write a book and put it out there and have your audience find it naturally, right? And not go on a whole self-promotion kind of thing, which feels awkward and weird, but that's not how it works. You have to go on a book tour. You have to uh, make social media posts about it. You have to send emails. You have to you know, talk it up. You have to find a way to, to simplify it for different settings, for the small attention spans, so that then people kind of go, oh, this book likes, okay, maybe I'll buy that. Or maybe I'll, let me read some excerpts and you know, let me check that out. So they've been really supportive. They recognize the effort I was putting in and, and have met me halfway and really been very, very supportive. I'll just mention to people that I'm on a, a book tour across the country. I don't just uh, read the book. It's not just a boring from a podium, <coughs> you know, coughing into the microphone kind of a thing. I put on a whole show. I call it a uh, appropriate to the content, a stand up tragedy show. There's a visual, you know, I have a, a huge backdrop of a huge flow chart that folds out of the book. I made it 18 feet long and five feet high and it's it's something I step people through, like taking a journey through our climate predicament via this, the largest flowchart the world has ever seen. And I bring in a props and visual aids and I tell stories and there's audience participation and laughter and choruses and uh, there's all this call and response and people have a chance to talk to each other and share their thoughts and feelings about all this stuff in a way that feels very dynamic and taking people on a journey. So that's the tour. And you can uh, check it out at uh, bettercatastrophe.com. Just click on the tour button and there's all the tour dates. So you can RSVP and find your way to them or tell your friends who live in those cities to go. Can I make a suggestion to enhance this tour? I think as part of the enriching environment, when you're speaking, you should serve out snacks of Marmite and Nutella. <laughs> so people can find something of their taste that they're going to be able to argue about. And I really think that that would enhance the way that people are looking at better catastrophe. I like that idea. I do, I do bring a little jar of Marmite with me and tell that story. But I haven't <laughs> yet put it out on little little toast. But we used to at these... um. Yeah, I used to sort of have a bottle of whiskey as an option, you know, given the nature of the content. And I don't do that anymore because not everybody drinks and that's felt inappropriate. But somebody did bring in at the event last night in San Francisco. Somebody went out and picked up a six pack and offered that around to folks. So there was some imbibing and partaking in the course of things. But they're very fun, you know, especially given the grimness of the topic. These are very uh, dynamic and fun and people coming together and connecting and feeling like they're going through an experience that's helpful to them. That's what people say. Like, I woke up the next morning in spite of the grim news, you know, and all the terrible things we stepped through. I woke up the next morning feeling excited and energized. You know, there's something about telling the truth, about being honest 
about our situation that is oddly energizing and oddly empowering. You know, even if it is kind of the facts are kind of brutal, like just not pretending that they're better than they are, not avoiding the issue, it somehow focuses our energies and makes us feel more operating in good faith with our circumstances. So the book helps us do that. And these events in a more experiential, full-bodied way, I think help people do that. That's what people are reporting. One last thing before I let you go, Andrew, and one is that description of you. You're a writer, humanist, activist, CEO, the chief existential officer of the Climate Clock. Tell people what the Climate Clock is, and you're near brush with great fame at the UN. <laughs> right. Very good. That's a great backstory. Yeah. So the Climate Clock, you can find it at climateclock.world, not .org or .com, but climateclock.world world it is a timepiece for tracking our progress on the critical solution pathways that we're on in transitioning off of fossil fuels to renewable energy, protecting the critical aspects of our ecosystem, uh, etc. Climate is not something that we can, it, it's on a very strict timeline. You know, Bill McKibben, founder of 350, famous writer and climate activist says, climate change is a timed test. If we win later, we lose. So we have a very strict timeline and we need to be on it and we need to accomplish certain things within certain time windows. And so it was like, oh, the world needs a clock to keep us honest, to make very visible what timeline we need to be on. So I and some uh, creative colleagues, electrical engineers, product designers, website builders, campaigners, activists, teachers, uh, scientists, et cetera, got together and built this clock. First, we built a small clock for a very famous person, Greta Thunberg, who had heard that we were interested in clocks and was giving this very important speech at the UN. And through various channels, uh, we were told Greta needs a clock. And we hadn't yet built one yet because it was just an idea. We were like, oh, my God. And we have nine days. Basically, she was giving this what became basically the Gettysburg Address of the climate movement that she uh, this four and a half minute speech she made at the UN three and a half years ago. And she was like, I want a clock. I want to walk in there with this clock that tells us what we need to do by when, how fast we need to make this transition from fossil fuels to renewables. And I want to give it to the UN Secretary General yeah, as a reminder. Every morning, he needs to look at this clock. The world needs to be setting its watches by this clock. And so we're like, okay. So we pulled everybody together and lightning speed built her a clock. And we got it to her the night before. And she sent us this lovely video message of thank you from her hotel room across from the UN, which was, um, you know, basically ended with her and her little 16-year-old Swedish voice, let's do this. And she walked into the UN with the climate clock the next day, prepared to do all the things we just said, give it to the UN Secretary General, et cetera, build her speech around it. And security at the UN grabbed it and wouldn't let it through because it looked like it was ticking down. <laughs> like the box ticking down and looked like it looked like a bomb, and in fact, it was a symbol of a bomb, a carbon bomb that our economy, our fossil fueled economy, is dropping on all of nature and on all of us. And so, you know, it was very ironic that we are trying to alert the world at this peak moment uh, where the world is paying attention to climate. Right, the most famous speech given about climate ever, basically, till now, and that the uh, <laughs> the object that would visualize it in real time, in dramatic fashion, this portable scientific instrument was seized by UN security and not let through. Yes, it's a bomb, but it's not a bomb that's going to, you know what I mean? It's not a terrorist bomb. It's a, a symbol of a bomb that we must fix. So that all happened. And then a year or so, you know, that moment, uh, she gave a phenomenal speech, didn't need a clock, whatever. And then we figured out how are we going to get this 
clock out to the world. And uh, it took us another year, but we basically found a large artwork that already existed in New York that uh, was a, in a clock kind of format, 15 huge digits towering over Union Square in New York. And we like reached out to the original artists and said, we want to change your art. We want to make that a climate clock. And they were like, great, we do too. So then it was a really extraordinary. When does an artist say, yes, let's change your art to my art, you know, to save the world, right? It was like a great, a very lovely moment. And then we collaborated on that. And then that was the big monumental size climate clock that went up three Septembers ago during the pandemic in 2021. And that became well known throughout the world. That was a viral moment that became world famous and put this clock on the map and made us more aware and alert to the harsh timeline that we need to stay accountable to. That's all at climateclock.world. And then we made these smaller clocks like the Greta clock, various prototypes, a much more advanced version. And we've put those out all over the world. And they're in the hands of activists uh, and climate champions of every walk of life from Amazonian indigenous activists to, you know, the Greta Thunberg of, of Uganda, Vanessa Nakate, etc. And they're using them to bring the truth of our climate timeline into the halls of power all across the world. And you can join in, you can buy a clock, you can put up a clock in your community by going to climateclock.world and plugging in there. And I'll just note for those that are interested, the clock will tick over from six years to five years, from six years and zero, zero, zero days to five years and 364 days that we have this sort of window, window to take action, to move ourselves off of fossil fuels to renewables. That deadline, that time window will click over, will, will mark a new climate year on July 22nd of this year. And that is a big day like Earth Day, called Climate Emergency Day, when people all over the world are going to be drawing attention to the urgency of climate action at that moment when the clock clicks over, July 22nd of this year. Join in, be part of it. And I think we have to leave it there, Andrew. Andrew, thanks so much for joining us for Spirit in Action. I want to, folks to check out your other books, Beautiful Trouble, Daily Afflictions, Life's Little Deconstruction Book. Go to the website, bettercatastrophe.com. All eight of the people that Andrew Boyd interviewed for this book, I Want a Better Catastrophe, are remarkable, insightful people. So you will leave this book richer, folks. Thank you so much for writing it, for wrestling with it. Thanks again so much, Andrew. You bet. A pleasure, Mark, and take care. Again, the website, bettercatastrophe.com. You'll find all the links, a lot more information on northernspiritradio.org. We'll see you next week for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. Check out all things Spirit in Action on northernspiritradio.org. Guests, links, stations, and a place for your feedback, suggestions, and support. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, and I hope you find deep roots to support you to grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. Oh